life can bring us storms. Those moments where we wander, wonder, doubt. The journey doesn't stop, but the progress does. It can be lonely, painful. Sometimes we try to stare it down, as if we could somehow will it to go away. Or we think we can go toe-to-toe and come out the other side, unscathed. We often forget just how small we are. The truth is, storms are inevitable. But when they appear, we have a protector. A savior who knows a thing or two about calming storms. A God who is a stronghold in times of trouble. In our weakness, He is strong. In our fear, He is courage. In our desperation, He is peace. Yes, storms are inevitable. But our God is invincible. Storms are inevitable, but God is invincible. That's what we're talking about today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this time to open your word, to look into the Bible and to recognize that you speak to us through your word. You show us the way, how we are to feel, how we are to act, what we are to know, and how to grow closer to you. Lord, we thank you that you are invincible. Almighty, ever-present, always near. And Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, show you the truths that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. That's a passage today, John chapter 6. We're continuing in our series, Always Near. Here's the key concept for this morning. Jesus can calm the raging storms of life. Jesus can calm the raging storms of life. While you're finding John chapter 6, let me tell you about a a situation of storm in life. Let me take you back to September 21st, 2005. And it's a, 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 the landing gear on flight 292, JetBlue flight 292 malfunctioned. And the front landing gear, the, the landing gear on the nose, didn't go all the way back in or didn't come all the way back out. It was stuck in a middle position. And so what had to happen was that the pilot needed to prepare for possibly a belly landing on that plane. And so what he started to do down in Los Angeles, this was taking place, is he started to circle seeking to burn off as much fuel as he possibly could. And very soon, however, the local media picked up on the story and discovered that this plane was circling and there was possibly uh, an emergency landing going to take place. And people were viewing that all across the country live via satellite. They watched this unfold. And some of the people who were watching that were the 145 people inside the plane. 
In that particular plane, they had little TV sets built into the, to the back of the seats, and the patch passengers were watching the live satellite feed from their seats, seeing their planes circling around and hearing the commentary of the newscasters regarding this potential emergency. Those passengers in that plane were helpless in those moments. They couldn't do anything about that situation. And I'm, I'm imagining that as time went by, they became hopeless because what it seemed like what had happened was a normal day, an everyday uh, regular day, turned into a day of terror as circumstances had conspired against them, seemingly to spell their doom. And the irony of it all was they were watching it live on TV. Now, eventually, here's the rest of the story. Eventually, the landing gear did deploy. They were able to land safely, and that was a great relief. But if you take away the TV coverage, if you substitute the plane for a boat, you get a very similar situation in the story we're going to explore today. This situation where the disciples in the boat on the stormy sea feel helpless against the elements, and their helplessness soon turns to hopelessness as they seek to hold on for dear life. I read a daily devotional guide written by Paul David Tripp, and one of the devotions this past week said this, you and I are on a continuing quest for hope. And that's true. We're looking for hope. Where can I find hope? And the message we'll see today is that hope is found in the nearness of Jesus. And He is always with you and He never forsakes you, even though it might not feel like it sometimes. So let's go to our passage, John chapter 6. We'll start the reading in verse 16, and this is what it says. When evening came, His disciples went down to the lake, where they got on into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But He said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then, then they were willing to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, the setting of this situation is important for us to understand because it really contributes to what the disciples would have been feeling that difficult evening. This is the end of a very long day, a long day of ministry, and a day in which they saw a wonderful miracle from Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had actually sought to get away from people, and He went to a lonely place, but the crowds followed Him. And there, as they followed Him, and as the day grew on, He became concerned about what were they going to eat, all these people there. And He performed that wonderful miracle, replicating food and bread, feeding the 5,000. It wasn't just 5,000. It was 5,000 men plus women and children. So it was an immense crowd, and they all were fed. And what happened at the conclusion of that miracle is the meeting changed tone. It went from being a meeting about hearing the message from the Master and seeing the miracles He performs and so forth. It went from that, and it turned into a political meeting. It goes like this. Look, go to verse 14 of chapter, of chapter 6. It says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, 
they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The mood of the crowd begins to change. Once they are awed by this miraculous power, somebody begins to think and then say, you know, this guy can get things done. This guy can cut through to the end and really make a difference. It's not all about politics as usual with this guy. It's not about committee meeting after committee meeting, feasibility study after feasibility study, gridlock, and nobody ever can make the decision to get things done. He cuts through it all, and he can produce. Now, that's the kind of guy I want as a king. I may never have to buy bread again if he were king. Wouldn't that be nice? And apparently, a lot of people started to think that way. And it was more than just kind of wouldn't it be nice wishful thinking, it began to be the mood of the crowd, and they were going to take him by force and make him be their king. Now, I don't know how you do that. I don't think they really thought this plan all the way through to the end, but that was the mood. They were forgetting about a little thing called the Roman Empire occupying force, right? But that was the mood of the crowd. And this moment all of a sudden, is a, it's, a, it's a high point, a peak of Jesus' popularity. This moment and the triumphal entry are the two high points when the people are rejoicing in Jesus as a star, more than a star, a superstar. He's the hero of the moment. This is the man. Let's make him king. And it would be easy on a human level to kind of be flattered by that, wouldn't it? It'd be easy on a human level to say, well, you know, that, that sounds good. King is good. I'd like that. But he didn't come to earth to be sidetracked by flattery. He didn't come to earth to be crowned as a human king simply because he can make bread. He's already king of the universe. To be king at that level would be a demotion, right? And as king of the universe, he came not to meet those political needs. He came to provide for our essential need, to provide salvation and hope for humanity. And that's the mission that Jesus is on. And that mission shapes his reaction to this moment, even of great popularity and great flattery, knowing the crowd had this intention. And he knew this was the wrong solution. A political king may be good, But redemption and salvation is best. And so he leaves. And he goes to a secluded place, probably to pray. He actively stops the movement that was brewing to make him king. Now, having said all that, I wonder, what do you think the disciples thought about that? They saw this wonderful miracle. They were, were a part of it. And now, after, at the, as the uh, food is being collected and the scraps being put away and so forth, they hear this murmur about a coronation. And at some human level, they must have been thrilled. They must have been, wow, finally, now we're getting some traction. Now we're winning hearts and minds and stomachs. We're doing it. And they're responding. The people, are, they, they love us. They love Him. But Jesus cuts it off and he walks away. Jesus doesn't even allow his disciples to bask in the second-hand glory of the moment. Yeah, we're, we're with him. We're, we're his friends. We're friends of Jesus. Yeah, 
Sure, they were in the spotlight as well. In Matthew chapter 14, when he tells the story, he says, Jesus dismissed the crowd and sent his disciples down to the boat to go to the other side. In other words, he actively cut it off. It wasn't like he just kind of slunk away so that nobody would find him. He actively cut it off. And they rode away in the middle of the night after that moment of great popularity. The Gospel of Mark tells us that it's between 3 and 6 in the morning when the scene of this walking on the water takes place. And so what has happened is this long, hard day has turned into a terrible, stormy night. In verse 18 it says, And the wind, a strong wind was blowing. And you can, uh, you can imagine the disciples not only fear for the wind and the waves, but exhaustion after the day and kind of confusion. Why did He send us away? Wondering what happened there. And here they are in the boat, too, uh, too far from safety, too long in the storm, too weak against the waves. And about the middle of the night, it seems like the storm is winning. That's what it felt like. The storm is winning. And sometimes life feels like that. The storm is winning. I like to keep my marriage intact but the storm is winning. I like to keep my kids on track, but the storm is winning. Have my health, but the storm is winning. At my job, it seems like the storm is winning, and I'm helpless and beginning to be hopeless. I'm losing my way on that quest for hope. The emotional context for the disciples is all of that as they pull on the oars in the boat, but there's more than that. And there's more than that because of the contrast regarding what they have just gone through. They have gut-wrenching disappointment in terms of the fact that they were on a high just moments ago. It was uh, hours at least ago. It was the peak of their, of their popularity. And from the highest high all of a sudden to the lowest low when they feel all alone on the sea and the boat is, and the storm is raging. And the boat is being battered. You see, there are some people who live their lives with this motto. Let's not get too excited. Or let's not get our hopes up. Or let's wait and see how this all turns out. They live their life in the gray twilight of never really allowing their imaginations to run wild. Never really clinging hard to the what-ifs and the if-onlys and oh, I can dream big they never let that capture their heart. And because they live that way, they feel that they're safe. And maybe there is a safety in that. But it's also a bland way to live. And I want you to see that the disciples are anything but bland people. These guys have left everything to follow Jesus. They've put it all behind. They left their jobs. They left their family. They left what they knew and where they were comfortable in their homes. And now they're wandering the countryside with this roving rabbi because they have put their hope in him. They have just, they are, are right now idealists in the best sense of the word. He is the ideal and I want to be next to him. They are visionaries. They're connected to him. And when you're that kind of person and you are riding high, seeing the ideal take place, when it comes crashing down like this, it's a big crash. And the thoughts begin to overwhelm. What went wrong? 
What, what happened there? I left everything to follow him. And finally, we're reaching to the top, and he blows it. Maybe, maybe he's not ready for prime time. The extreme low that comes crashing down, doubt comes flooding in. And I imagine they were churning with those kinds of thoughts as they were pulling on the oars. But you know what they weren't doing? They weren't talking about it. You know, I know that because I have been in men's groups my whole life. And they weren't talking about it. They were thinking it. They were working hard. They were averting each other's gaze, kind of just talking about what, what is that hand? Give me the rope. Pull on the oar. Bail out the water. But inside, there was that gnawing fear. And then verse 19 happens. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. And he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. John recalls that moment vividly. This, for the Apostle John, is what we call an impact memory. The details are there. The colors are there. The sound, probably the smells are there. An impact memory. And he writes about it in a unique way. Remember, John did not write about all the miracles that Jesus did. He picks, picks ones that are, that are significant to him. But the reason he writes about this miracle is because of the way that this moment made him feel. And he felt that Jesus, in his very presence, was giving them what they exactly needed, and that is rebound, up once again. He learned a few things about Jesus that night, which focuses his impact memory. He learned, first of all, that Jesus watches us in the storms. I mean, a dark sky, no stars, no moon. Uh, the storm had rolled in, and they're in the middle of the lake. The, this, in verse 17, the sentence structure kind of points out the fact that they had waited for Jesus. It was getting dark, and they had waited, thinking maybe any moment he'll get in the boat with us, but he never showed, and so they took off on their own. And this day was turning into a marathon of effort, all day being with people, crushed on every side with the crowds wanting to be near Jesus. And now, after the exhaustion of that, now facing this storm. And just when they're thinking the situation is desperate and I'm not sure I can row anymore, here's Jesus walking on the water next to the boat. Unbelievable. But more than that, it's not just that He's there. His presence is, in a sense, an entrance into the emotions of their heart. John learns, you see, that even when we think Jesus doesn't see, He sees. Even when we think Jesus doesn't care, He cares. Even if we believe He's not, he's not aware, He's aware. And even if we hope maybe He doesn't watch, He watches. He's always near. I hope you hear that as good news. Up all night with a sick child, you're not alone. And unable to sleep because you're worrying about the bills, Jesus is watching. Tempted to put your good Christian attitude on the back burner so you can engage in some juicy gossip, Jesus is listening. Planning to take a vacation from Jesus, spend some time in Sin City and blow off some steam, Jesus is going with you. always there. 
John learned also that Jesus comes while the storm is raging. They were needy on a couple of levels, but one of the levels was physical. They had been a long time on the water. The winds were adverse. Mark tells us that they were out like in the middle of the, of the, of the Sea of Galilee, just had just made a, a three miles or so headway. After a long time of rowing the boat, that is not good progress. They're exhausted, they're cold, they're wet. And Jesus takes care of that. Look at verse 21. When they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. In the snap of a finger, Jesus gets them to the shore, just where they need to go. No more exertion, no more exhaustion. On a physical level, Jesus takes care of them. And then there's that emotional level I talked about, the rebound experience that they need to have. A rebound is when you're in the pits and you're just kind of crawling along and somebody says something that's just right or does something that's just what you need. And you say, oh, th thank you for that. That's just what I needed to hear. That's just what had to happen. Thank you for that. And what they needed was a private miracle just for them. They needed that private miracle that would calm their private doubts, something that would be memorable, that would be faith-strengthening in the midst of all of the things, the emotions that are raging. While they struggled, He came. And even though they were probably silent about their fears, silent about their doubts, some of them may be wondering, maybe He's a fake. Maybe it was a trick. Maybe I was stupid to get all caught up in this. There's Jesus. Hi, guys. Walking on the water. Now that's rebound. This story is told in John and Matthew and in Mark. And in all three of the tellings of, of this situation, the key phrase is this. From the lips of Jesus. It is I. It is I. Do not be afraid. His nearness chases that fear away. He, mo he enabled them to turn the corner of their emotions. And this is why John tells the story the way he tells it. Because John wants us to feel what he felt. My quest for hope seemingly was dashed, but there was Jesus. See, when you read the Bible, I want to remind you to always ask questions of the text. Ask the question, why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write it this way? Why did he put those facts in, leave those facts out, use those phrases? Because as you do, you get an insight into what the Spirit is saying. John tells this story differently than the other two gospel authors. There's no mention that when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, at first they thought he was a ghost. Matthew tells us that. John doesn't tell us that. There's no mention of Peter getting out of the boat and trying to walk towards Jesus. Matthew tells us that. John doesn't tell us that. Now, I think that's pretty important, but John leaves it out. There's no mention that Jesus actually ever gets in the boat. We assume that, and once again, that's mentioned in the other Gospels, but not by John. There's no mention in the Gospel of John that when Jesus got in the boat, the storm was stilled. But Matthew and Mark both tell us that. John doesn't get there. In other words, this is a very sketchy telling of the story. And there's a reason for it being a sketchy telling of the story. Because John does not want you to get all caught up in the facts. 
He wants you to get caught up in the feeling. The feeling that he had, the rebound that he made. So he tells the story, very sketchy, kind of a little spooky to it, you know. But he wants you to get that same impression that he had, short on details but long on emotion, the way that John felt that night. And he zeroes in on the one emotion that is overwhelming over all the things that he felt that day, and it is this. Jesus will wow you if you let Him. He will wow you. He will blow your mind with what He can do and what He will do if you let Him. Because John has learned that Jesus is the source of safety. More than knowing how to row a boat, more than knowing how to, to navigate the sea, Jesus is the source of safety. I read this, this quote, When you have nothing left but Jesus, then for the first time you realize that Jesus is enough. And that's what John learned. And that's the thing he wants us to grab on an emotional level. Jesus is enough. Because some of us are in the boat, in the storm of life right now, pulling hard on the oars, and you're getting weary, and the emotions feel very close to what the disciples felt, disappointment, fear, doubt. Maybe it's fear for the future, or maybe it's coupled to regret from the past. I blew it there, and I'll never be able to redo that. I made a mistake. I messed up there. So I'm deep down in the boat as the storm rages. And what happens is it's easy for fear to turn into anger and for anger to turn into resentment and for our resentment to be the only thing we focus on in the storm instead of God and Jesus' nearness. And you might be like the disciples, not really talking about it. But the people around you can tell because, in a sense, you're gripping the oars of your life pretty firmly. You're straining to get moving, pushing ahead in a way that every day it just seems like you go through the cycle, you go through the motions. And John wants us to know there can be rebound. He wants us to understand Jesus is watching. He wants us to recognize Jesus comes and He is near Sometimes He lets us spend a little time in the storm. Why? So that when He shows up, it will be significant and emotional for us. So that will impact us as a memory we carry like He carries. And so our part in the storm is, for some of us, you got to keep rowing. For some, keep bailing the water. In other words, do your best. But while you're doing your best, keep a watch out. Watch with an eye of wonder. Watch for how Jesus will show up. And when He shows up, make sure you bring Him on board. Don't push Him away in the pride of life. Listen for the words, it is I. Don't be afraid. Let them reverberate in your heart. Because right there, we find the stillness that our souls seek. He is invincible. And He is your Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we might not audibly hear the words, it is I, don't be afraid, but allow us to believe those words. Allow us to sense your nearness. Allow us to trust your strength, your mercy, and your timing. And we thank you, Lord, for John's recollection of this impact memory. Lord, for some of us who are in the storm right now, we're looking for you hoping for You. Lord, we pray 
that in your nearness you give us a joyful rebound because we trust you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.